This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Rob Arnott, and he is the chairman and founder of Research Affiliates, a firm who essentially patented the concept of fundamental indexing. Pretty much they invented it. And uh, I know Rob for a good couple of years. He was on the show in 2018. And his office just cranks out so many fascinating research pieces, hence the name Research Affiliates, that, you know, after you read the third or fourth thing from somebody in a couple of months, it's like, damn, I got to get Rob back on. This is some really interesting things. We went deep into the woods on electric vehicles and Tesla and we talked about what makes a big market delusion when an entire sector, not just a company, a whole sector, runs amok. We talked about everything really from ESG to Bitcoin to value. I thought it was really intriguing. If you're at all interested in fundamental indexing or smart beta, if you're interested in where alpha comes from and what the sources of various value and other types of factor premiums are, then you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with research affiliates, Rob Arnott. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Rob Arnott. He is the founder and chairman of Research Affiliates, a firm that has created and patented a methodology for creating indexes based on fundamental metrics instead of the traditional market cap weighting. Various asset managers are running over $160 billion using strategies developed by research affiliates. Uh, Rob is the author of over 100 academic papers, seven of which won Graham and Dodd scrolls and awards. He is the co-author of the book, The Fundamental Index, A Better Way to Invest. Rob Arnott, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. There's so much to go over since the last time we had you on the show about three years ago. Let's just start out with Research Affiliates, or, or Rafi as, as I know it. Um, you guys don't manage assets directly, but advise on over $160 billion in assets. Explain to the listeners how that process works. Well, we want to focus on our area of competitive advantage, and that is in doing research, in developing investment strategies, in carrying out um, uh, and exploring uh, potentially disruptive ideas for the investment management community. Um, to run an asset management firm also typically means um, a call center, means portfolio accounting, it means uh, uh, trading desk, uh, trade reconciliation departments, and the list goes on and on and on. So the last time I ran an asset management firm, First Quadrant, back in 2004, uh, we had about 120 people and uh, roughly 12 were in research. Here we've got about 80 people and roughly half of them are in research. So we're able to concentrate our attention on our area of competitive advantage while at the same time uh, using 
uh, affiliates, external distribution partners, to handle distribution and client relationships. And so basically they view us as an extension of their R&D capabilities. Uh, certainly they're not going to replace their R&D efforts, but if our ideas are complementary, then we're an extension of that, and we view them as our distribution channel. Let's talk about one of the strongest research ideas and strategies that you and your firm are behind, and, and that's the basic concept that, hey, we're doing this index weighting thing all wrong. Instead of doing it based on market cap or the size of the company, it's instead it should be based on fundamental metrics like revenues or profits. Explain why that's a better approach. Thank you for asking that. A lot of the attention in the world of so-called smart beta is on um, formula-based techniques for investing. And the umbrella term smart beta began as a focus on strategies that no longer weight companies in direct proportion to their price, which is what cap weighting does, and it's cap weighting's heel, uh, Achilles' heel. Uh, uh, if you weight companies in proportion to the, their price, then any company that's above its eventual fair value and destined to underperform will have an, a current weight that's too high. And any company that's cheap and destined to outperform will have a current weight in the portfolio that's too low. So you're going to be overweight the overvalued and underweight the undervalued, even though you don't know which ones are which, which is an interesting nuance. Um, but the term smart beta has since been uh, broadened to embrace factor investing and basically anything that uses a formula. Uh, even momentum investing is called smart beta, although it's the antithesis of the original definition. Uh, Fundamental index was an idea that we came up with in 2003 in the aftermath of the bursting of the tech bubble. A, a dear friend of mine uh, who was on the board of the New York State Pension and was uh, uh, founding president of Common Fund, which manages commingled uh, university endowments, uh, he was horrified at the amount of money that was lost by major pension funds by investing in cap-weighted indexes as the tech bubble burst. 4% of the portfolio um, uh, invested um, uh, uh, in the largest market cap company at the time, um, Cisco, and okay. Cisco subsequently went down something like 90%. So there went, if you had 4% in it, you, there went 3.6% of your money in one single stock. Okay. Uh, he challenged us to think about better ways to invest, and uh, we came up with the idea, uh, an idea I'd been playing around with for a few years. Why on earth do you want to invest in proportion to market capitalization, which means that the more expensive the company is, the more heavy its weight in the portfolio? Why not weight companies in accordance with sales or with profits or with book value or, or even with number of employees. So um, we went back and tested the idea, uh, first starting with sales and book value. And going back 30 plus years, we found that if you chose the thousand largest businesses in the U.S. based on their sales and weighted them by their sales, that you wound up two and a half percent a year better off than with cap-weighted indexing. And 
we tested it with book value. We tested it with profits, with cash flow, with EBITDA, with number of employees. Um, and everything we tested had one and a half to two and a half percent excess return. So that was our first aha moment that, oh, it doesn't matter what measure you're using. What matters is whether the measure incorporates price. Because if the price is too high, then any any weighting scheme will do better. You could use darts, or you could base it on the number of executives who like to have a mustache or whatever. Um, and you're still breaking the link with price, and you're still going to add 15 to 2.5% a year. Cool. And so we developed the idea of Fundamental Index, which has um, uh, become a very important part of our business. It's uh, uh, over $140 billion in assets now, and it's under license to other distribution partners, PIMCO, Schwab, Invesco, uh, Nomura, and the list goes on and on. We have uh, uh, at least eight part distribution partners with at least $10 billion each um, managed using our ideas. So what yeah. is cool about Fundamental Index is that you're earning a profit based on two things. First, the obvious one, a value tilt. Um, if um, uh, growth stock is priced at lofty multiples to fundamentals, then you're reweighting those stocks down to their economic footprint, the size of the business. And if a stock is trading at deep discounts, you're reweighting it up. So you have a stark value tilt all the time, and value investing usually wins. But it turns out that's not the dominant source of incremental return. It turns out that the dominant source of excess return is a rebalancing discipline. If a stock soars and the fundamentals don't, then RAFI, the fundamental index, will say, thank you for those lovely gains. Let's reweight this investment down to its economic footprint. And if a company tumbles and its fundamentals don't, Rathi will say, oh, thanks for the lovely discount. Let's reweight you back up to your economic footprint. So since the market is constantly changing its mind as to how much a company is worth, you're constantly rebalancing, contra-trading against the market's most extravagant bets. And your biggest bets will be on the companies where the market is making the biggest bet in the opposite direction. The companies that have soared the most GameStop soared tremendously this uh, quarter on top of an already stupendous rise in 2020. So you'd look at that and say, if you owned it, which we did, we owned it as a value investment with a cost basis of around uh, a little under four bucks a share. If you owned it, you'd say, thanks for this great gain. The underlying fundamentals haven't changed. Let's take some profits and rebalance. That rebalancing alpha is the dominant engine for incremental return. And that is not true of most of the strategies that currently carry the smart beta label. That's interesting. The, the pushback I've heard from the traditional market cap weighted indexers are, on the, on the one hand, you're selling stocks that have rallied and very well may continue to rally. If, if you're rebalancing away from Amazon or Apple any time over the past, I don't know, 12 years, you know, you saw the stock go higher. And on the other hand, on the cheap ends, 
you have a tendency to buy into the value traps, things that look cheap because they're inexpensive and still have revenues, but aren't. What, what's the counter to that critique? That critique is absolutely correct. Um, here's the deal, though. For every Amazon, there is um, uh, a company that is perceived as a disruptor that subsequently gets disrupted. Um, Apple has been hugely successful, and contra-trading out of Apple um, has not been a good thing. But who came before Apple? Um, Blackberry, Palm. Palm was dominating the world of handheld um, communication devices back in the year 2000 when it was spun off from 3Com. It spun off at a valuation briefly greater than General Motors. At the time of the spin-off, it was spun off from 3Com at a total market value larger than 3Com's market value before the spin-off. Isn't that interesting? And, um, of course, it went to zero. And BlackBerry disrupted Palm's business. And then no sooner was BlackBerry dominant and world-straddling on uh, handheld communication devices, and Apple came along with the iPhone and said, hey, hey, this is a whole lot better. And so did the marketplace. So disruptors do get disrupted. And yes, we miss the boat on uh, highly successful companies that go from strength to strength to strength until they don't. And uh, on the downside, you do have value traps. You'll rebalance into them. Uh, in theory, all the way to zero, which is one reason you absolutely do not want to rebalance a fundamental index strategy daily, because then you'll just buy into the value traps all the way to zero. So there's two broad flavors of fundamental index. One rebalances annually. The other does what's called quarterly staggered rebalancing, which means every quarter you move one-fourth of the way to your target weight. Mm -hmm. That way you're going to be hurt by value traps only modestly, only occasionally. And uh, for every value trap, there are uh, several companies that look cheap and in fact are. So case in point, 2009, uh, trough of the financial crisis, the, the March 2009 rebalancing that took place in fundamental index, um, uh, we rebalanced to the economic footprint of businesses. B of A and City were both um, uh, priced at a fraction of a percent of the market, and yet both of them were about 2% of the U.S. economy measured in terms of of revenues, profits, book value, dividends, and so forth. General Motors was about 1% of the economy and a tenth of a percent of the market. So we rebalanced into all three. We rebalanced back up to a 1% weight in GM and 2% each for B of A and City. And GM went to zero in the next quarter. Went bust. Value trap. There went 1% of our portfolio. The 2% each in B of A and City tripled. So you wound up going from 2 to 6% in two stocks and from 1 to 0 in a third stock. So the beauty of fundamental index is not that it has any special insights into what the fair value of a company is, but that it contra-trades against the market's most extravagant bets, which often in the long run turn out to be wrong. 
People love to buy growth stocks because they've got a great, great story. But the right question to ask is not, is this company a great company? If it's a growth stock, of course it's a great company. The question is, how much good news is there in the future for this business that isn't already in the consensus opinion and already in the current price? Is there more likely to be downside surprise, growth that is less extravagant than expected, um, or uh, upside surprise where uh, lofty expectations are actually exceeded? Amazon is a beautiful example of a case where lofty expectations have been exceeded again and again and again. And at some point, they won't be, but uh, who knows when. It's a brilliantly run company with a brilliant product that is disrupting vast swaths of industry. Um, Kudos to Bezos and his team. But the price of the stock uh, reflects an expectation that the growth of the last decade will persist in the next decade. And that's a little dangerous. So you guys actually received a patent for this methodology of selecting securities and, and creating indexes. Um, why a patent? What does that do for the firm? It's really kind of fascinating to see a financial methodology actually awarded a patent. Well, method patents are not new. They've been around for decades. Um, uh early days of patents, it had to be something you could hold in your hand to be patented. Uh, uh, But uh, over time, with the advent of um, computers and so forth, um, the notion of method patents applied to uh, software methods, computer software methods, uh, uh, even business methods, if they were truly unique, truly different, and truly disruptive to an industry, um, why shouldn't it be patented? Now, the issue that I think bears mention is uh, we could be in the business of product innovation or in the business of patent litigation. Uh, which expertise do we have, the former, not the latter? So I view the patents really as a stake in the ground to say to the financial services community, hey, this is our idea. Please respect it. Please um, license from us at modest fees if you want to use this idea. Um, Work around the patent if you want to explore something similar but different. Competition is a great thing. Um, And what we've found is the financial services community is a whole lot more... um, uh, honest and has more integrity than its reputation. A few bad eggs in the financial services community tarnish the reputation of the whole community. So what we found is that there have been a handful of cases where somebody just took the idea and ran with it. And the vast majority of folks in the financial services community, if they like the idea, they'll come to us and say, we'd like to license it. And uh, if they don't like the idea, they don't have to use it. So the patent is not so much a basis for going after people. It is a basis for saying, hey, please respect our space. Speaking for credit for respecting intellectual property, for a long time, I've heard you credited with creating the phrase smart beta, um, but you've described that as more something you've popularized than created. 
Give us a, uh, a quick explanation of that. Sure. There's a consulting firm that works with some of the largest pension funds in the world called Towers Watson. Their London office um, coined the expression smart beta. And the idea was not that cap-weighted index funds were stupid beta. The idea was that um, the cap-weighted index funds were a neutral form of beta. They called it bulk beta. Um, uh, and the stupid beta is those who chase fads and load up just on whatever's gone up the most. And the phrase smart beta was attached initially just to strategies that broke the link with price, that would trim a stock if its price went up and all else remained unchanged. Um, and so that included equal weighting. Equal weighting is about as simple a strategy as you can imagine. How could it be smart? Well, it's smart because it has embedded uh, rebalancing, although it does have a profound small cap tilt that makes it uh, less liquid and more expensive to trade. Fundamental index was the inspiration for the term smart beta. But I never invented the term. I liked it. I thought, that's a clever way to label it. And then pretty soon, everybody under the sun was saying, oh, we do smart beta. You had um, index calculators saying, um, hey, our growth and value indexes are both smart beta. No, they're both tied to the price of the stock. They're still cap-weighted. Um, you had factor investors saying, our value factor is smart beta. Well, that's true, because it does contra-trade. Uh, our momentum factor is smart beta. No. That chases whatever's gone up the most. Uh, our quality factor is smart beta. No, that's going to load up on whatever's expensive also. So you had lots of organizations embrace the phrase because the phrase itself sells. It helps selling product. So uh, I like the expression smart beta, but I, I like its original definition. And if smart beta is applied to everything under the sun, smart ideas and stupid ideas, then the term ceases to mean anything. And I think that's where we are now. Rob, you wrote a really fascinating piece with your team titled Big Market Delusions, Electric Vehicles. I want to start with your definition of, quote, big market delusion. That's when all the firms in an evolving industry rise together, even though they're competitors and ultimately some will win and some will lose. Why does it not make sense for investors to just own all of the basket of everybody in that space and eventually the market will self-correct the winners and they'll outweigh the losers? Well, that is the basic definition of diversification and it makes sense unless all of the firms in the industry are priced as if they will be uh, outlier winners because they won't. Um, if if a company is priced as if it will achieve stupendous success and it achieves stupendous success, wonderful, you did fine. You didn't get hurt by that. If five companies are all priced as if they're going to be stupendous successes and you know that only one or two of them will, then you've just bought a basket that collectively is uh, destined to perform badly. Uh, the guy who coined the term big market delusion is Brad Cornell, uh, past professor at UCLA and at Caltech. And 
it's an idea that's been around, but it's a great term to capture the concept. Back at the peak of the tech bubble, there were several of us, uh, me, Cliff Asness, and probably dozens of others, who pointed out that not all the tech companies will win, and they're all priced as if they will all win. So as a segment, uh, they were collectively extravagantly overpriced. You can even have it on the other side, an anti-bubble, like at the trough of the financial crisis, financial services companies were all priced based on the perceived risk of bankruptcy. And so they were priced as a call option on future survival. And yet, with each company that failed, that went out of business, the landscape was now cleared for the others to earn outsized profits in the subsequent economic rebound. So big market delusion can play out in both directions. We singled out electric vehicles because um, at their peak uh, during this last quarter, uh, Tesla was priced at 34 times its annual run rate sales. Um, Now, there's eight companies around the world that specialize in electric vehicles. Tesla was the second cheapest of the eight in terms of measured market value to prior year revenues. 34 times sales was second cheapest on the list. The others were ranged from uh, the others ranged from about 20 times sales to literally 10,000 times sales. So when you have those kinds of valuations, the uh, winners might might be worth their valuations, but the losers most assuredly won't. And that's the nature of big market delusion. Uh, I have no idea if Tesla will be worth its current price. I very much doubt it, but I have absolute confidence that the collective EV market is not worth its current price. Well, I know they've had a fantastic run ending um, the in the research piece, you use January 31st of this year to show how far all of these companies have, have come. Um, are, are they remotely like, I'm thinking of the old days of biotech, where it was impossible to come up with a valuation because it was so binary, you would end up with, hey, either this company develops a molecule that does what it's supposed to and then becomes a stupendous success, or it doesn't, and it's a zero. Or, or, or can, should we be looking at these EV companies the same way? Either they're going to put out a successful car, and that's what jumpstarts them, or they're just expensive R&D shops for now and perhaps might be worth nothing. Well, the, the correct way to do the kind of analysis you're talking about is if this company produces a disruptive product, that massively changes the industry, what's it going to be worth, and what are the odds that this will happen with this company as the dominant winner? The missing piece in a market, big market delusion is that latter piece. If all of them are priced as if they have the potential to be massive successes, then you have a problem. And that's, that's the issue we're dealing with. Um, Tesla, is, is it is its current valuation too high, or is it in bubble territory? One of the things that I think is interesting is everyone bandies around the word bubble, 
as if it has some clear meaning, and it doesn't. Uh, Usually it's used in retrospect after a bubble has burst. So we came up with a definition back in 2018 that we think can be used in real time. And that definition is very simple. Um, If you're using a discounted cash flow model, uh, you would have to make implausible assumptions about future growth to justify the current price. And second part of the definition, just as important, um, the marginal buyer has no interest in valuation models. Let's take Tesla as an example. We uh, did a piece on Tesla last December as it was on its way into the S&P, and we had done an analysis where we assumed, let's, let's say Tesla's book of business, its sales grow 50% a year for the next 10 years. Now, how plausible is that? Well, Amazon, the big winner of the 2010s, grew 26% a year over the uh, decade ended 2020. 26% a year. That's enough to make a company 11 times as large in just 10 years. 50% a year makes a company 55 times as large. So tacitly, we were assuming that um, Tesla would be five times as successful as Amazon over the coming decade versus Amazon over the last decade. All right, that's a pretty darned uh, extravagant assumption. We then said, let's further assume that Tesla is has a an after-tax profit margin 10 years from now that is that matches the highest after-tax profit margin of any automaker uh in the world in the last decade. Well, there was one year when Toyota hit a 10% after-tax profit margin. So let's assume 10% uh uh, gross profit margin. Um, well, that's pretty good profits. If you discounted that back to current prices, you could justify a price of $430. The peak was twice that. So that's an example of um, uh, using a definition of bubble to test it in real time. Now, can Tesla wind up uh, using other markets to justify the current price, perhaps, but you're really dealing with some pretty extravagant assumptions. And the point of big market delusion wasn't that Tesla is a bubble poised to crash. I do think Tesla is an extravagantly overpriced company that investors will be very lucky to have a positive return over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, Very lucky indeed. But the point of big market delusion is um, if you look at the electric vehicle industry in aggregate, it's worth about 80% as much as all other vehicle makers combined. And oh, by the way, over half of all electric vehicles are made by those other existing players who make conventional cars and electric cars. So the EV specialists comprise less than half of the EV market and have total valuation very nearly that of companies that collectively produce nearly 100 times as many vehicles. 100 times as many vehicles. You know, what's so fascinating about that is how, after really taking their time, the traditional internal combustion engine car manufacturers 
have really ramped up their EV game. I had a Ford Mustang for a week I got to play with. Really a very nice, very well-made car. Good-looking, very high quality, surprisingly high quality, um, and in many ways way superior to not the software of Tesla, just the physical vehicle. The, the new Volkswagen ID4 is getting really good reviews. Uh, we're, and, and that's before we start talking about what's coming out of Mercedes and, and Audi. Audi has a run of um, RS cars that are um, very competitive. The same with the Porsche Taycan Turbo, as fast as cars that cost 10 times as much. So I, I know the EV manufacturers are all battling amongst themselves but there's a really strong case to be made that the future of electric vehicles is coming from the internal combustion uh, group. I think that's exactly right. Um, when Volkswagen or Toyota decide, well, Toyota's been a pioneer um, in hybrid technology, which by definition means they've been a pioneer in electric vehicle technology, um, for uh, longer than Tesla's been in existence. So nobody's going to deny that Tesla has been a massive disruptor, that Tesla has a big head start, and that Tesla has a surprisingly good product for a newbie automaker. But when Toyota decides to spend more on uh, electric vehicle um, uh, innovation, then Tesla could plausibly take in as gross revenues uh, over the coming three to five years. And to do that every year, um, okay, Tesla's going to have some serious competition. So um, the, the whole notion of big market delusion is that people look at disruptors and say, these disruptors have the future in their sights. They know what's coming, they're positioned for it beautifully, and they overlook the fact that disruptors get disrupted. It happens again and again and again. There's no doubt Tesla has a lead in things like over-the-air updates and autonomous driving and the supercharging network, but you already see companies like Lucid, which their new vehicle, the Air, is coming out later this year, much longer range, much um, smaller electric motor. It's a mid-sized car on the outside, and, and the inside, it's a full-size vehicle because they were able to miniaturize so many components. They really brought um, a lot of impressive technology to the game. Disrupting the disruptors, what does history tell us that's like, so you mentioned phones, what about other things like PCs or televisions or railroads? Is that historically consistent? The disruptive technologies themselves eventually get disrupted? Oh, that happens again and again in industry after industry. It's hard to, it's hard to come up with any industry where the disruptors weren't ultimately di displaced by new disruptors. I mean, how many search engines did Google displace um, in its rise to, to dominance of the search engine space. Uh, I, I read one study that said there were 26 search engines wow. uh, that came and went with Google as the ultimate survivor. Um, will somebody disrupt Google? Um, who knows? Um, 
uh, is it priced to allow for the possibility that a disruptor will knock them from their perch? No, it's priced for the um, expectation that that can't possibly happen. And and it could happen. Um, this is this is the Achilles heel of growth and momentum investing that uh, disruptors do get disrupted. I recall a couple of years ago you had done a study about the additions and deletions to various indexes, and it turns out, uh, especially with the S&P 500, the companies that get added underperform the companies they replace. And in Tesla's case, that would be apartment investment and management. Uh, You guys are forecasting that this is going to outperform Tesla over the next one, five, ten years? What what do those numbers look like historically for additions and deletions? Well, uh, just to be clear, we aren't forecasting that um, uh, that uh, uh, Tesla will underperform AIV um, by 2,000 basis points. We're observing that historically that's been the norm. And so that's a little bit different. But um, uh, the norm is that the companies that are added to the S&P 500 underperform by about 2% in the subsequent 12 months after they're added. Companies that are added and are already in the top 100 by the time they're added uh, underperform by about 7% over the coming uh, year. Now, no company other than Tesla has ever been added, which ranked in the top 10 uh, the day it was added. Uh, And so one would assume, extrapolating from history, that its performance in the first year would be expected to be negative to an extent that's larger than those historic norms. The companies that are dropped, on the other hand, usually are small, thinly traded, illiquid, and they just get clobbered as they get removed, but their underlying fundamentals usually are mediocre. That's why they're dropped, fully reflected in the price before they're dropped and bludgeoned down to unreasonable levels on the way out. And the result is the companies that are dropped from the S&P, and here we're excluding corporate actions, a company that's dropped from the S&P because it doesn't exist anymore doesn't count. But discretionary deletions like uh, apartment investment and management, on average, historically beat the S&P by over 2,000 basis points uh, in the first year after they're deleted. So that would suggest to to us that based on history, uh, apartment investment and management would be expected to beat Tesla by maybe 30 percentage points in the first year after the change was made. Tesla's kind of a special case because everyone knew that S&P was going to have to add Tesla. And the investment committee of S&P just uh, basically said, hey, we've got a rule. If you don't have profits for the last four quarters, we're not going to add you. And so in March of 2020, I remember uh, seeing speculation in the media that if the first quarter was profitable, Tesla would finally have four consecutive positive quarters, um, and the S&P would have no choice but to add them. And that set Tesla off on a, on a tear. So mm-hmm. Tesla was up, uh, I think the number was uh, six or seven hundred percent 
from its March lows uh, until the decision was announced in November to add them, uh, and then an up another 50% or more from the announcement date to the actual inclusion in the index. Just astounding numbers because Tesla was a big company, big market cap company. And so the addition to the S&P meant that the market, the index funds would have to buy upwards of $200 billion worth of the stock on that same day. And, uh, of course, it's not that uh, anyone didn't anticipate that. Hedge funds would load up on it in anticipation of flipping it to the index funds. And, of course, they did. Uh, So... Additions and deletions to indexes have their own special characteristics and are very much disrupted. Uh, I continue to be amazed that academia hews to the notion that markets are efficient. Right. Has has anyone thought to put a long short fund together of these additions and deletions? It sounds like that's a uh, potential alpha generator. I think it's a potential alpha generator. It's going to be a very uh, niche-oriented strategy, because let's say there's let's say there's 20 changes in the index in a given year, you're going to go long 20 very illiquid stocks just before they're dropped, uh, and short 20 um, uh, very liquid, very popular stocks uh, just as they get added. So you're going to wind up um, having a big short on large cap stocks and a big long on small cap stocks, uh, a big short on growth stocks, a big long on value stocks, and a big short on highly liquid stocks and big long on highly illiquid stocks in a lumpy concentrated portfolio. So I think as part of a broad strategy, it would be a fun thing to put together. As a standalone strategy, uh, I think it would... um, uh, have a little too much risk for the tastes of most investors. To say the least. So let's talk a little bit about value. You wrote an interesting piece with your team uh, titled Reports of Value's Death May Be Greatly Exaggerated. Tell us about why value ain't dead yet. <laughs> well, whenever anything in the finance world is called dead, chances are it's, it's about to come back to life. Uh, however, I would say that we've been hearing reports of values death uh, for three or four years now, and so it sure took a long time to begin its recovery. Um, the narrative is uh, growth stocks are better growth have better growth and better profit margins than they used to. Value stocks are more disrupted, and disruptors are getting better and faster at disrupting and just demolishing vast swaths of business. Um, and so values uh, really had its day and is not coming back. Well, why would value fail? Uh, again, the narrative fills in the details. Uh, one of the core engines for the value factor is migration. A company that's in the growth segment falls out of favor, tumbles in valuation multiples, pulling down the performance of the growth portfolio, and then it's kicked out and replaced with a new high flyer. Um, A company is, um, uh, on the value side, turns out not to be facing as severe headwinds as people feared. So its valuation multiples soar, and then it's replaced with a new 
deeply unloved value company. So you get this constant rotation for growth, underperform and out, for value, outperform and out. And that's the dominant engine for the value factor. It's largely offset, but not entirely offset, by the main profit engine for growth, which is the companies are growing faster. They're more profitable. They're better companies. Of course they are. That's why they have the higher multiples. And so if in an efficient market, the benefit of growth should pretty much exactly offset the benefits for value from its migration, from its rotation. Now, the narrative is um, that that rotation is slowing and the difference in quality between growth and value stocks has widened. There's truth in that narrative. There's truth in most narratives. The migration has been slowing, but not by much. The differential in profit margins for growth versus value has widened, but not by much. And so one of the shocking findings was that during the worst period for value investing in history, uh, a period of time when if you were using price to book to define value, uh, value underperformed growth by uh, 59 percentage points over a 13-year span. Just horrific underperformance. How much of that came from value falling out of favor and becoming cheaper relative to growth? Well, turns out well over 100% of the underperformance was value getting cheaper, not value companies underperforming. So what we found was that the relative cheapness of value went from being one-fourth as expensive as value as growth to one-twelfth as expensive in that 13-year span. That means that value cheapness fell by 67% while its performance fell by 59%. Okay, that sounds like a, a subtle nuance, but what it means is that if the relative valuation hadn't moved, value would have beat growth again in the last 13 years. And again in the last three years during the really dreadful meltdown for value. If you've got a stock that has fallen by 60 or 50 or 60 percent, but its P.E. ratio has fallen by 60 or 70 percent, do you look at that and say, get me out of here, I can't stand the pain? Or do you look at that and say, hmm, I can't believe it's this cheap, let me buy it. I lean towards the latter interpretation. Now, the second nuance in the paper that I think is very important is that price to book is the worst measure for defining value. If you use price-earnings ratios, the peak wasn't back in 2007. The peak was in 2014. If you use price-to-sales, it was 2017. If you use fundamental index to cap weight, our strategy, it was 2017. It makes a big difference between whether you've got a 13-and-a-half-year dry spell where value is underperforming and a a three-and-a-half-year dry spell. Uh, the former is really hard to stay the course. The latter is less so. So I look at um, uh, price to book as a terrible measure. And we, in fact, in that same paper, dive into that and show that uh, price to book, that book value itself, misses all the intangibles. 
we've heard we've all heard the cliche that our assets go up and down in the elevator every day. Well, that is true of bigger and bigger swaths of the U.S. economy or the world economy than used to be the case. So we found that intangibles uh, were about 30% as large as tangible book value 50 years ago, and now it's 100% as large. It means book value would double, literally double, if you include intangibles. We also did a test and found that if you use price-to-book value where you adjust the book value for intangibles, firstly, the performance of the price-to-book value factor is twice as good over that last 57 years as it was without um, uh, adjusting for intangibles. Um, And again, the peak was 2014, not 2007. So it works much better if you take account of intangibles. But price to book is not the only measure. It's not even by a long shot the best measure. And Rob, when we're talking about things like intangibles, we're referring to things like patents, copyrights, processes, methodologies, things that just don't show up in the traditional, hey, here's our factories, here's our headquarters, those sort of measures of book value. That's exactly right. Hmm. Quite interesting. So for value to start generating that value premium again, what has to happen? Do we need to see mean reversion against growth? Do rates have to tick up or do we need to see a recession? What's going to be the the thing that could kick off uh, value reclaiming its premium? Well, we've already had that recession last year and it was a doozy. Um The narrative was, and again, narratives are always based on some measure of fact. The the problem with narratives in investing is that they move prices much too far. The narrative was that the growth companies are beautifully positioned for a COVID world and a post-COVID world. True. Uh, The narrative was value stocks have much higher risk of bankruptcy and in the face of um, uh, the COVID crisis, especially the business lockdowns, there's going to be sweeping bankruptcies. True. Now, what was overlooked was almost all of those bankruptcies were in companies that were too small to be publicly traded. So there were literally millions of companies that went out of business last year. But shockingly few of uh, of the 30 million businesses in the U.S., only 3,500 are publicly traded. And of those 3,500, let's say 2,500 are value stocks, shockingly few went out of business as a consequence of the lockdowns. So all you needed was for people to realize, gee, uh, these value companies didn't fail. Maybe I should now start pricing it not based on bankruptcy bit risk, but based on its likely future P&L. And all of a sudden, uh, the turn happened at the beginning of September, just when people were starting to realize, hey, uh, vaccines are about to be rolled out. Uh, This is looking promising as an end to the crisis. And a lot of these value companies are just not going to go bust. So maybe I should reprice them for their future success. And we've seen that in in energy stocks and cyclicals and in bank stocks. That rotation away from growth a lot of which were work-from-home stocks and towards traditional economic early-cycle recovery stocks, that seems to be really moving along. 
unless I'm I'm seeing it wrong. What what are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right. Um, we did a test looking at drawdowns um, when value underperforms growth, and it ranges from you know what one month um, value underperforms growth by half a percent. So that's a half percent drawdown from the last peak. And 13 years underperforms by 59 percentage points. We asked the question, historically, is there a link between the magnitude of the drawdown and the magnitude of values outperformance in the subsequent two years? And we found that when, when value has underperformed by more than 3,000 basis points, it has no uh, examples historically of failing to outperform over the next two years with an average outcome of between four and 5,000 basis points of outperformance. So when you see the nature of that particular relationship extrapolating to the current size of the drawdown, uh, uh, and extrapolating is always dangerous, but if past is prologue and if extrapolating that relationship to today's unprecedented drawdown uh, works, then value would be expected to outperform growth by over 100 percentage points over the next two years. You know, if it's a third of that, I'll be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> to say the very least. Let's talk a little bit about yields and inflation. We've been hearing a lot of chatter about yields starting to tick up higher from admittedly low historical levels. Does this have any meaning for value stocks or the market as a whole? What what should we take away about rising yields? Well, firstly, it bears mention that uh, yields are not well correlated with the stock market. The stock market uh, has uh, stocks and bonds tend to have a negative correlation, except during inflationary times when inflation is rising or is uh, materially elevated. And so what, what we find is that it's a poor linkage. But, but um, again, the narrative is uh, low rates justify high valuation multiples and justify a bigger spread between growth and value than historic norms because growth stocks are going to grow for a long time. And if you're discounting at a very low rate, that future growth is more valuable than it was at a high rate. Okay, it makes intuitive sense. Going back over long periods of time in history, uh, you still you find lots of anomalies. Okay, in the early 50s, when interest rates were not too much above current levels, um, uh, what was the average valuation multiple for the market? It was a third what it is today. What was the average spread between growth and value? It was a fraction of what it is today. So, and when you look at... Um, non-U.S. markets, European and Japanese markets in particular, uh, where rates are zero, you find valuations are not as elevated as in the U.S. If the rates are even lower, why not? Uh, that the spread between growth and value is not as wide as the U.S. If the rates are lower, why not? But a narrative can drive markets, and so the rising interest rates, I think, has a lot to do with the recent underperformance of FANG stocks and the recent outperformance of value stocks. Uh, uh, basically, the rumor that this might happen uh, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy 
on a short-term basis. On a long-term basis, I don't think the linkage is all that useful or interesting. And I assume the same goes for inflation and inflation expectations, or, or does that result in a different outcome? That's a little bit different. Rising inflation uh, clearly does horrible things for bonds and also um, increases investors' risk aversion in equities. So when stocks are expensive, rising inflation has a nasty impact. So the real question is, uh, is the current increasing rate of inflation a temporary consequence of uh, deflationary pressures 12 months ago and a snapback in pricing over the last 12 months, or is it a sustained consequence of um, uh, today's uh, central bank and fiscal policies around the world, which look to all the world to me like uh, a full, wholehearted embrace of modern monetary theory? So let me ask that question now. Uh, deficits, as far as the eye can see, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House, either it's tax cut and spend or tax hike and spend, but we've seen nothing but deficits for my entire adult life with a couple of, I think in 98 or 99, we had a balanced budget for a year or so. Uh, what is what does the rise of modern monetary theory mean for markets? What? Well, modern monetary theory is a little bit like Keynesianism on steroids. Keynes basically said, hey, you can spend more money than you're taking in in taxes, and you need to during an economic downturn. Then you cut um, your deficit spending when the economy recovers because the, the spending isn't as needed, and you can uh, run a surplus to um, pay back the increase in the debt. Well, that's gone right out the window. I think Keynes would be horrified at current uh, economic uh, theory and practice. Modern monetary theory takes it another step, basically saying um, central bank can print whatever money the policy elite wants to spend uh, as long as that spending goes to increase employment and therefore uh, to increase future revenues to pay this back. Um, uh, okay. Uh, as you said, it's it's um, um, not sensitive to who's in the White House. Uh, I joked last year in the run-up to the election when people would ask about the election. I, I said, uh, look, we have an incredibly important choice ahead of us. We have a choice between somebody who will run $2 trillion deficits as far as the eye can see and somebody who will run $3 trillion deficits as far as the eye can see. Uh, I may have erred on the downside on that latter one, but <laughs> yeah, to say in any event, to say the least. Yeah, in any event, uh, the the usual immediate question was yes, but who is who? To which I would reply, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Um, so and as you so say, let's both both parties have embraced MMT. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Let Let's stick with the topic of recessions and recoveries. Uh, I am a big fan of Campbell Harvey, an academic who is now a part of the team at Research Affiliates. When when did Campbell Harvey join Rafi, and what does he do? I, I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, I'm a huge fan, too. We, we kept inviting him to join our advisory panel, which uh, used to meet once a year, 
um, where we would gather uh, notable academics, usually including a couple of uh, Nobel laureates, together to pose big-picture questions, not uh, where should people invest today or what strategies and products should we look at developing tomorrow, um, but how is the world going to change in the coming 10 years? And um, uh, he joined our advisory panel two or three times, but he was always committed to work for uh, the folks at Man Group. And um, uh, as soon as PIMCO um, recru recruited Manny Roman to become their new CEO, turns out Manny had not only hired Cam Harvey, he also went to university with Cam Harvey, and uh, they were very good friends. So um, uh, with, um, with the help of Manny, we went to Cam and said, hey, why don't you um, join us in a more formal relationship? And so uh, we're his dominant consulting relationship. We have access to a certain uh, portion of his time. Uh, he is... Um, the guiding light for our R&D. He's already led some path-breaking work in um, what's called pairs trading. And when you mention that you're a big fan of his work, uh, one of the things I find fascinating is, uh, unlike most academics, his work is squarely focused on what's practical, what's useful. And in modern academic finance, uh, practical and useful are two of the most damning things you can say about somebody's work. If it's practical, oh my goodness, what use are they in academia? Uh, well, I love that about Cam. He's a um, uh, tremendous innovator, uh, deep thinker, and has been an enormously important addition to our team. Let me ask about another one of your team members, your colleague, Alex Picard, who wrote a fascinating piece um, about Bitcoin, and I thought this was really intriguing. So many people are sort of dancing around Bitcoin, given the run-up, they're, they're afraid to get in the way of it. Picard wrote, quote, Bitcoin is not a capital asset or a store of value. The price of BTC is nearly certainly a bubble and likely manipulated. What are your thoughts on that? Well, firstly, you're asking the wrong guy. Um, um, <laughs> uh, Bitcoin, how do you value, using discounted cash flow, how do you value something that has no cash flow and never will? Um, in that sense, it's no, no different from a dollar bill. A dollar bill has, has a value, but discounted cash flow, it doesn't have any. So the price of Bitcoin and the price of the U.S. dollar is exactly what the consensus in the marketplace thinks it ought to be worth. Mm -hmm. In the case of the dollar, that moves slowly and sadly inexorably in the direction of worth less and less. Uh, it's worth uh, on the order of one hundredth what it was worth, worth, worth a century ago uh, in terms of purchasing power. Um, Bitcoin seems to move the opposite direction, uh, but in both cases there is no there is no measurable value. There is no way to say this is worth that amount. Um, so when Alex says Bitcoin is near certainly a bubble and likely manipulated, my response to that is 
Yeah, I agree. But the reason I say I'm the wrong person to ask is that unlike Alex, uh, I never bought much in the way of Bitcoin. I think it was back in 2015 I bought one Bitcoin just as an item of curiosity to watch it. And um, I I missed that entire boat. I do think Bitcoin is a speculative asset. People talk about it as a replacement for fiat currency because the supply is strictly limited and is capped at a level that uh, is not that much larger than today's outstanding float. And they're right, but a a fiat currency is is used uh, as a mechanism for exchange of goods and services and a store of value across time too and it can't be a store of value if its price pole goes around that's a problem with bitcoin it can't be a means of transacting um, buying and selling goods and services because um, transacting in bitcoin has very large transaction costs so it can't be a replacement for fiat currency. And, and as, as such, um, I wouldn't own it. But, hey, my son, a year and a half ago, bought a, uh, put his money half in Tesla and half in Bitcoin. And uh, <laughs> at the end of last year, sent me his statement, which was up 380%, and asked me, how'd you do, Dad? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have to admit to being, having been dead wrong on both for a while now. That's pretty funny. Let's talk about ESG for a moment. Some people have been making the case ESG, environmental, social, and governmental styles of investing, are a factor. You make the case that it's more of a theme than a factor. Please explain that. What's the difference? Sure, sure. Um, A theme, a factor is something that can be clearly defined where the stocks um, on the one side of the factor uh, and the stocks on the other side of the factor uh, strongly correlate with members of that same cohort. So growth versus value. Growth stocks correlate with one another. Value stocks correlate with one another. And the difference in performance uh, has historically favored value and does so for a reason that you can reasonably explain. ESG... um, uh, one of my colleagues did a test where he looked at a half dozen different vendors of ESG product at their definitions of what is an ESG, uh, how an ESG score is calculated for each company, and found that the correlation between ESG definitions is shockingly low, not right. that much above zero. So my ESG and your ESG are likely to be very, very different. It's hard to create a factor when that's the case. Right. Makes, the other makes element a lot of that sense. I think is, is also interesting and a little disturbing is it used to be called SRI, uh, uh, Socially, Socially Responsible, Responsible Investing. investing. Right. And back then, the narrative was you want to invest in ways that uh, align with your values, with your principles. Um, and you can do so with a portfolio that's going to perform... Uh, reasonably in line with the broad market. Um, Don't expect to win with SRI investing, but don't expect to give up much either. That narrative has shifted. Now it is 
With ESG investing, you can invest in line with your principles, and as more and more people shift over to ESG investing, you get a tailwind, and you will outperform as well as um, uh, aligning your investments with your principles. You you do well by doing good. In fact, you do better than the market. Um, well, that narrative offends me because anytime you you narrow your opportunity set. Um, in theory, you shouldn't be boosting your performance. You should be degrading it. And you'd be boosting your performance only if ESG stocks were inherently superior. I have no problem with ESG. I have a problem with marketing it as a superior source of higher investment performance. Um, and huh. so I look at ESG as a major trend in the marketplace, one that must not be ignored, one that indeed we have offered product to help people uh, invest in ESG in a fundamental index fashion that uh, can beat the market because of fundamental index, not because of ESG. And we're pretty proud of that. But ESG stocks are trading at a large premium. That raises a really interesting question, and you've touched on this in three separate groups of assets. Uh, one was domestically higher price U.S. stocks are trading pretty well, especially compared to Europe and Japan. Bitcoin, there remains a firm bid beneath that. That's doing well. And now ESG as a potential tailwind was the phrase you used, which really raises the question, for all of these tradable assets, is it simply a function of demand and supply? If enough people want to buy something regardless of valuation, arguably we've seen elevated PE multiples in the United States, especially if we use the Schiller Cape Index since the early 90s. Yep. At what what point is it strictly more dollars chasing fewer shares or coins and that relative imbalance causes prices to go higher and higher? Well, what you've described is the nature of a bubble. Bubbles persist longer and can go further than anyone could possibly imagine. My favorite example is, is Zimbabwe stocks, which during the summer of 2008, when the currency was first going into free fall, let's split the summer into first half and second half of the summer. First half of the summer, the currency fell um, uh, fell tenfold in purchasing power in just six weeks. And uh, the Zimbabwe stock market rose 500-fold, not 500%, 500-fold, 500 times the price. Adjusted for the currency, it rose 50-fold, meaning that if you thought this market's overpriced and the currency is headed for a cliff and uh, get me the heck out of there, um, in fact, I'm going to make a modest short position, a 2% short position. Those six weeks would have wiped you out. You would be wow. bankrupt because um, the 2% short position went up 50-fold. Uh, okay, well, that's daunting. What happened in the next eight weeks? The currency fell another 100-fold, and the stock market basically went to zero. So you were huh. right over the next quarter, but bankrupt. So be very careful when dealing with bubble assets. Do not bet against them in any material way, but that doesn't mean you necessarily want to hold them. Huh, very interesting. I know that you're a fan of motorcycles, 
And a couple of years ago, they were described as underpowered toys. But there was a really interesting Hannah Elliott column in Bloomberg about the EV market for motorcycles is surging with exciting new possibilities, including some powerful bikes. What are you driving these days? What are you riding these days? And would you ever consider an electric bike? Well, I absolutely would consider an electric bike. The problem with electric bikes today, and this isn't a problem with, with cars, um, is the weight. I mean, if you if you have a 1,000-pound uh, battery on, in a car, um, so what? If you have a 100-pound battery on a motorcycle, that's a big deal. Right. And uh, so it disrupts the handling and the range is problematic. Um, in other words, I think electric cars are already at a point where they are practicable and useful for anyone other than long distance driving. Um, and with motorcycles, that's just not true. Um, I'm old enough at this stage that I don't really ride that much. Um, uh, I've been in Florida um, all of this year to date. The last time I was out of Florida was uh, last October. Um, and I won't ride in Florida, so I haven't ridden this year yet. Um, but uh, bottom line is uh, uh, electric vehicles are here to stay. Electric motorcycles are coming. It's just that the technology isn't there yet. Uh, uh, that said, they are blindingly fast. I was looking at the Arc Vector, and, and that thing is a bolt of lightning, literally. Yeah. It's quite fascinating. So let me ask you a different automobile question. I'm not a car collector. I'm a driver. I, I don't understand people who buy sneakers and don't wear them. Sneakers are for wearing. Cars are for driving. That said, I'm kind of fascinated with the thought of all of these collectible internal combustion engine vehicles, what happens to that market in 30 or 50 years? Will there still be people who can repair them, rebuild them, renovate them? Or is this market, you know, on a, on a short timeline? Well, short answer would be, of course, there will be people who can repair them. Um, there's, there's a market for anything that any, that, has enough customers that are interested. And uh, uh, I do think 20 years from now, uh, electric vehicles will utterly dominate the roads and that um, self-driven cars, cars that a human being drives, will probably be illegal because we'd be a, huh. we, we'd be a threat. Um, um, Autonomous cars are going to be electric. Um, can you imagine an autonomous car going to a gas station and saying, fill her up, uh, right. versus just going to a recharging station and plugging itself in? Uh, right. The latter is very easy. Uh, so with autonomous cars, you're going to have um, electric vehicles utterly dominant. That means that today's collectible cars, almost all of them conventionally in, uh, powered, are going to be an anachronism and have no practical value. They'll have collector value, and there will be races uh, where people take um, Ferraris and whatnot. What I think that means is if you've got a Chevy, um, it's going to be uh, pretty, pretty much worthless 
in 10 to 20 years. If you've got a Ferrari, it'll have collector value. And um, okay, that's the nature of a changing marketplace. Quite quite interesting. What are you streaming these days? Tell us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime show or whatever podcast you might be enjoying. Sure. Um, uh, My wife is Russian, and so one of the things we love to do is is find an obscure Russian film or an obscure um, uh, uh, Russian TV series um, where she watches in the original language and I read the subtitles. Um, uh, There's a uh, Russian crime series from 2015 called The Method, which is about a uh, fellow who solves crimes using all kinds of illegal methods to find and take take down the uh, bad guys and a woman who um, uh, becomes more or less his apprentice and ultimately his health is not very good um, uh, so she really is his prospective replacement and uh, it, it ran for I think two seasons and uh, was great fun to binge watch it's called the method uh, huh fantastic actress. She also appeared in a later uh, TV series called Better Than Us, in which she played the role of a a robot that was um, able to have emotions and able to think and feel and uh, therefore better than us. So anyway, uh, two wonderful uh, Russian series. Very interesting. Tell us about your mentors. Who helped to shape your career? Oh, gosh, there were so many of them. Um, uh, uh, Jack Bogle was a mentor. Um, Harry Markowitz was and still is a mentor. Um, Peter Bernstein uh, was a giant in shaping who I am and uh, how I think about investing. Uh, Bill Sharp, um, uh, the list goes on and on. Um uh, Basically, I look to anyone, uh, uh, and I still do this. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say I still have mentors, but um, uh, I look to anyone who has insights that are interesting that I can learn from and who has ways of approaching the business that I can emulate and uh, seek to build on. Very interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? Oh, there's a fun book that I I had last week um, called Ten Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know. It's an extremely fast read. Uh, It's extremely simple. And basically, it looks at, you know, the narrative is, look how many things are going wrong with the world. And this one just turns that on its head and says, look at how many things are going right with the world. Life expectancy up. Um, The subsistence poverty um, was something like 60% of the world population uh, 30 years ago, and it's dropped from 60% to 8%. Um, And so it goes through a a whole series of trends and basically poses the question, hey, why why is everybody um, so quick to criticize how the world is. The world has its flaws, uh, but it's way better than it has ever been in human history. 
and uh, I thought it was just a marvelous um, uh, piece. Another that I I love that I finished about six or eight months ago was 1491 and 1493, two big tomes detailing how the Western world looked before Columbus and how the advent of global trade um, uh, in the aftermath of uh, Columbus uh, has reshaped the world and reshaped opportunities uh, the world over. Um, those are three really cool books that I would heartily recommend. Huh, very interesting. Let's talk about some advice for a recent college grad. If they were interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Oh, my advice would be very, very simple. Whatever you're taught from whoever teaches it to you, ask the question, um, is this true? Have people tested it? And um, um, I I think I could credit my career uh, to the notion that... um, uh, Basically, I always ask the question, has somebody tested this? If there's a bit of conventional wisdom floating around, I love to test it. And half the time I find it's absolutely correct. And half the time I find that it's absolutely false. And it's in that latter category where something is widely believed but false that profit opportunities can be found. So be skeptical. Be skeptical. Ask. And if you have access to the data, test it. Very interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first getting started? Yeah, um, uh, that's that's an easy one. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, I was doing that stuff, testing conventional wisdom, often finding it to be wrong and then publishing my results and having expecting uh, people to say, wow, this is cool. And instead, the reaction was very, very often, how dare you? How dare you challenge um, what we know to be true? Um, and uh, uh, I wrote a piece in uh, 2000 entitled Death of the Risk Premium, and about five years later met a guy at a conference and asked him how things were going, and he said, well, things are going fine. Oh, oh, by the way, I no longer hate you. And I said, what? (laughs) He said, you wrote Death of the Risk Premium. You challenged everything I believed in investing, and I hated you for that. Uh, I now realize you were right. Um, So uh, 30 years ago, I used to be really disappointed when my work angered people. Now I just shrug it off. I, it's, it's a given. If you upend somebody's worldview, they're going to be angry because they've built their career on the basis of uh, a premise that you just demonstrated was wrong. Of course they're going to be angry. And so uh, I roll with criticism. I'm almost amused by criticism these days where 30 years ago, it just, um, I was thin-skinned and it really hurt. Well, Rob, thank you for being so generous with your time. This has been really fascinating. We have been speaking with Rob Arnott. He is the founder and chairman of Research Affiliates. 
If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of our previous 400 interviews. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Marufal is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>